0: THE SAGE OF NEW HAMPSHIRE SERIES BY MCROLAND BOOK THREE HUNGER SEASON CHAPTER SEVENTEEN TOUGH SUMMONS What is taking him so long? Martin paced the Hendricks' kitchen. Here comes somebody, Mrs. Hendrick peeked between window curtains. She hurried to the kitchen door. Jean Martin exclaimed. You've got Lyle. Uh, hi, Steve. Dustin, you've got Lance, too. Oh, this is a great start. Martin peered over the men assembling inside the kitchen door. Uh, where are Berg and the others? I don't know, said Jean. He said something about getting folks from Bell Hill and West Village. But he was having trouble making contact. Robert's coming, riding Jasmine. That'll give us one mounted unit anyhow. Martin paced impatiently. Oh, we're going to need more people than this. Mill Pond is a big perimeter. If they get spooked, they could go in any of a zillion directions. Who? Jean asked. We still don't know what all this call the battle stations is about. Okay, here's the quick version. I think the guy that we have in the jail cell did not kill that old couple. I think another man, whom I've crossed paths with a couple times, may have done it. Perhaps it was his whole gang. "'Gang, how many of them are there?' Oh, five. Three men, two women. I observed them coming out of their hidden hut down on the edge of Millpond, maybe thirty, forty minutes ago. They didn't see us. Us? Yeah, never mind. I'm worried that they might bolt. If, at the trial, I'm going to show reasonable doubt that Cameron didn't kill the Altmans, I need those people brought in for questioning, if not arrested.' "'Here's a map of our area.' Charles re-entered the kitchen. He spread out a USGS map of their quadrant. Ah, where is this camp of theirs? Martin pointed to the little peninsula. Their hut is right here, but it's almost invisible. It doesn't look like anything is there, but it is. If they did have something to do with the Altmans, they could be easily spooked. They could go around this way and be gone, or this way around the swamp and be gone that way. They could catch this shortcut trail and be gone over Wilson Hill or or come this way and be gone down to Sanford. Jean's brow furrowed. Yeah, we don't have enough guys to watch all those routes. I know, said Martin. That's why I'm so impatient that Berg brings some others. Yeah, no word on the radio, added Charles. Martin threw up his hands. Well, there's no time to wait. I'm going to go stake out this spot here. At least I can watch the most obvious route. He pointed to the dotted line that marked the shortcut path. All those other times I've walked that path, I never saw any other foot trails veering off it. So, I've been thinking that they must use that little stream. That little wooden bridge is really low. They could step off the path and walk in down the stream. "'That's how they came to break into our shed?' asked Mrs. Hendrick. "'Well, could be,' continued Martin. "'If I park myself off the path, I can watch both ways.' "'Well, you can't take on five people alone,' said Jean.' We'll send some of us. Oh, no, 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 no. Martin waved his hands back and forth. We can't bunch up. We don't know which way they're going to go, if they go anywhere. We need to surround the area as best we can and just watch until more help comes. I, I gotta go. Okay, we'll figure out posts we can watch. Jean turned to point at the map on the table as Martin slipped quietly out the kitchen door. Martin walked slowly down the shortcut path. He made no obvious sounds, but also watched as far into the trees as he could see. He stopped periodically to watch for any sign of movement. As he neared the little wooden bridge, he felt he had pressed his luck as far as he should. He took a wide step off the path on the side away from Millpond. He settled in beneath a young pine, heaping up snow to make a visual barrier to hide him from behind. The wait seemed interminable. Our rapid response teams need a new name, he grumbled in his mind. Perhaps they're rapid if we were attacked by a gang of sloths. There was no movement visible in the direction of the gang's camp. Only the faintest of clanks or creaks could be heard in the distance. A horse whinny, nearby, suggested that maybe Berg had finally arrived. Martin held his position despite the cold ground draining heat from his body. The sound of footsteps far to his left caught his ear. Someone was coming down the path. He watched Berg, Landers, and Tyler walk past him and stop at the little bridge. They were looking for him, but they hadn't seen him. Martin rattled the sling of his carbine. All three men spun around, guns ready. Martin wiggled the little pine as a sign. He didn't want him shooting him. The three made simultaneous slumps of relief when Martin rose up. They were obviously tense. Gene filled me in, Berg whispered. You think one of them is the murderer? Or they all are, Martin whispered back. But we need to question them. Yeah, we had the jury pool all settled, Landers chimed in. We had twenty good men and women right there, willing to come help. But only a few of them came to town hall with firepower. Most of them had to go home and give up. Well, oh, that's okay for rogue sloths, I suppose, Martin thought. And, Berg added, I couldn't raise West Village. Bell Hill finally answered. They've got some mounted units on the way. Jean and Lance are staying at the Hendrick House as our headquarters. They have the deployment plans for them. Okay, so uh, what do we do now? Martin asked. Walk in and announce that they are hereby summoned to appear in my office, said Berg. He held up his bullhorn as visual aid. Once I get the clicks, he held up his radio. That signal everyone is in place around the perimeter, we walk in. While they waited, Martin filled in Landers and Berg on the shopping cart gang's attempt to rough up Nick and the big goatee man's attempt to abduct Mara. The others were very curious about Mara, but Martin didn't feel like going into detail. They were there to get the shopping cart gang. He also theorized that their discussions about the barn burners' boot prints might have been overheard. The gang probably couldn't help but overhear Cameron and Earl arguing over the firewood and sheds. Both houses were less than 50 yards from Millpond. Robbing the Altmans of food, then framing Cameron for the murders and the barn burning, was too tempting to pass up. Chief Berg's radio clicked three times. It clicked two more times. And then four. Okay, they're all in place. Let's go. The four men walked in, pushing through the brush alongside the stream. Martin led the way until he could just make out the curve of the hidden hut between the trees. He looked for, and found, a tripwire. He pointed it out to Berg. That's the doorbell, Berg said. Martin, you take up a spot on the left, other side of the stream. Tyler, you set up on the right. Landers, you take cover here. Martin found a big maple to set up low behind. When he had his prone position settled and the hut scoped in, he gave Berg a thumbs up. Tyler did the same. Berg kicked the tripwire and waited a few moments. Attention in the camp, blared the bullhorn. This is Police Chief Berg of the town of Cheshire. We need you folks to come into town to answer some questions. There was no answer, but Martin thought he could hear rustling coming from the hut. Were they hoping to pretend that they didn't exist? Attention in the camp, repeated Berg. We know you're in there. Come on out. I need to ask you some questions. After a long pause, the big man in the gray coat emerged from behind the snow-capped dome. Martin thought he caught a glimpse of other movement to the left and right, but couldn't confirm it. We don't know nothing, said the man in gray. Just camping here, minding our own business. Might be, Berg shouted without the bullhorn, but we had a couple of people killed the other day and... Crack it to crack! Martin saw a muzzle flash low and left of the hut. Out of the corner of his eye, he saw Berg fall backwards with a grunt. Martin sighted in on the place where he saw the muzzle flashes and fired off two quick rounds. Other shots rang out throughout the woods. It was hard to tell where they all came from. He started to crawl toward the fallen chief, but Tyler waved him off. "'Keep their heads down!' Tyler shouted. He crawled and rolled toward Berg. Martin fired on the previous spot again, but saw no other muzzle flashes. Other shots struck the trees, sending shards of bark spinning. Plumes of snow leapt up at bullet strikes. "'Chief is down!' Tyler half screamed into the chief's radio, "'Repeat! Chief is hit! Need cover fire!' Several shots crackled from around the woods. Stuba crawled up, assisting Tyler and Landers. Martin couldn't see Berg, but could hear him grunting rapidly. Tyler's voice was trying to sound as comforting as possible, but still extremely tense. In the glimpses, Martin could see that Tyler was working on Berg's wounds. "'Pop, pop, pop!' another muzzle flash appeared on the right. Shooting up and right. Jean had advised his group not to waste shots. Ammo was a finite commodity. Someone higher up on the slope fired a few rounds into the area that the flashes had come from. The ground all seemed low, no obvious barricades. Martin wondered if the shopping cart gang had dug defensive trenches or foxholes. Back cack rattled off a burst from the left side. They have full auto. Martin wondered. That was a serious upgrade from the deer rifles he saw them with. He kept his head down, except for random peeks. How were they going to dislodge five people with full auto? Had they bitten off more than they could chew? Martin was preparing to sneak another peek around the left side of his tree. He caught a hint of something flying through the trees. A bird? A severed branch? His eyes followed the path. Tree branches don't fall sideways. It was a spear, and it stuck in the ground to the left of the hut. The big man in camo rose up out of the ground, rolled over onto one elbow. His other hand reached around, trying to get a hold of the spear in his back. For a long moment, Martin simply watched in amazement. She hit him with a spear? Then he suddenly realized the opportunity. Camo Man was exposed. He quickly sighted in the crosshairs. He aimed for Camo Man's right shoulder. If he could disable him from shooting, they might still take him in for questioning. The man pulled out the spear. The opportunity was disappearing. Martin rushed his shot. Camo man fell backward. After a brief pause, which was strangely silent, the man in gray emerged from his foxhole on the right. He yelled like a barbarian, charging the gates, firing bursts left and right as he ran toward Tyler, Berg, Landers, and Stuba. Martin lost sight of the gray man behind his tree cover. He could hear shots clattering from the slopes. By the time Martin got around the right side of his tree, he saw the man in gray stumble running, the gun no longer at his shoulder. Another hit turned him sideways. The big gray man fell against a small tree and bounced off. He fell face down in the snow. There was another odd silence. Everyone seemed to be waiting for something else to react to. The gray man didn't move. Martin could see a lump of camo material behind the low ridge of snow. It wasn't moving either. Two hands emerged from the ground to the right. Don't shoot, cried out a faint voice. I give up. Yeah, Don't shoot, okay? No one answered. I give up, see? Ah, no gun. The small man of the shopping cart gang slowly stood up, his hands high in the air. Close in carefully, Stuba said into the radio. Martin could just make out Nick and two others advancing from tree to tree down the slope on the right. On the left, he could see Dustin and Lyle doing the same. Keep your hands up where we can see them, Stuba said into the bullhorn. Where are the others? Martin called out. There are two more. Be careful, Stuba said into the radio. There are two more somewhere. Walk towards me, slowly, Stuba said into the bullhorn. The small man complied. While Tyler held his sights on the small man's head, Stuba handcuffed him and recited his Miranda rights. Martin stood behind his tree for a better look at the camp. Camo Man lies sprawled on his side on the snowy ground. Martin motioned for Dustin to move around farther to the right, along the pond edge. He motioned for Lyle to join Martin to approach the hut. Nick and the other men were circling the hut on the left. Camo Man lay facing the hut, his AR near his knees. Martin slowly reached down to pat Camo Man for other weapons. He kept his front sight on Camo Man's motionless head. Oh, dang, I hit him in the neck. Martin knew he had jerked his trigger in his excitement. He wanted to bring the big man in alive to answer questions. In addition to the autumn camo coat and pants, The man wore tall, camo-patterned rubber boots. I wonder if these are Camerons. How would you ever prove that they were? His word only? Martin lifted Camo Man's arm to feel for a pulse. But from the amount of blood on the snow, it was pretty obvious that he was dead. Lyle made some little hissing sounds to signal that he was in position to cover the door of the little hut. Nick and the other man were in position, too. Martin used the spear to lift the camo netting from the entrance, then a gray tarp flap. Lyle shone his flashlight into the hut's darkened insides. It took a few moments for Martin's eyes to adjust from the bright snowscape to the dim interior. He held his own flashlight in his foregrip hand. Around the perimeter lay scattered blankets, sleeping bags, and lumps and folds. A fire pit in the center still smoked lightly. Behind the smoke, Martin saw the two women huddled together in seated fetal positions, arms holding their knees. The darker-haired woman was visibly trembling. "'Come on out here,' Martin said firmly. He propped the spear such that it held open the gray tarp. He backed up several steps, shouldering the carbine, with the front sight on the dark hut opening. He wasn't sure that he could shoot a woman, but his heart was still racing. He was in no mood for tricks. "'Come on out,' he tried to sound less menacing. Uh, We we won't hurt you. A half a dozen rifle barrels aimed at you tends to undermine such reassurance. Slowly, the dishwater blonde woman emerged from the hut. She had her hands held high. She was of slight build, perhaps mid-thirties, with a plain round face, eyes wide, hair in disarray, and without a coat. She was clearly not prepared for the confrontation. The dark-haired woman emerged, trembling hands held straight up. She looked younger and smaller. She was fighting back sobs. Tear tracks streaked both her cheeks. She, too, didn't have a coat on. Step over here, Martin pointed, to a well-trampled clear spot fifteen feet from the hut. Without taking his eyes off the two, he reached into the hut entrance, feeling with his hand. He pulled out one blanket, then another. He motioned for Lyle to check them for weapons, then tie their hands. Once tied— Martin draped a blanket over their shoulders. "'Get them up to the Hendrix's house,' said Stuba. He walked up to the hut. "'Tyler has chief stabilized. Lender's keeping him company. Waiting for a stretcher to take him up to the Hendrix, too.' He put the radio to his mouth. "'Everyone return to Hendrix. We have them all. Yeah, more or less.' Nick and Lyle escorted the women along the stream, toward the shortcut path. Mm, Not exactly foxholes, said Stuba. No, more like glacis, said Martin. Being so near the pond, they probably couldn't go down far enough for foxholes. Their hut was half dug in, so the spoil from that was handy fill for making their defensive glacis. A few sticks, leaves, and snow, and it looked indistinguishable from other ground. He took Mara's spear and leaned it against a tree near the start of the pond ice. She was probably watching, and would want it back. Stuba took pictures of the dead man in camo. He picked up the rifle. Hmm, not an AR after all. Three-position safety, M4. Wonder where they got these. All three of the men had one of them. And look here, came Dustin's voice. Look what I found inside their hut. He pushed out four ammo boxes of 556. They were set up for a long one. "'How's the chief?' Martin asked. Ah, still pretty rough,' Landers replied. "'Tyler's got the bleating stopped from the hit on his arm. "'He thinks the chest hit broke a rib. "'He's hoping not, since bone fragments might cause some internal bleating. "'It was a good thing Berg was wearing his soft armor,' Tyler said. "'Still, that hit did a lot of damage.' Stuba walked into the kitchen from the back room. "'I can't get anything out of him.' His voice was weary with frustration. He refuses to say a word, not even his name. Ah, the blonde woman can't say anything either, said Charles. The brown haired one just cries, added Landers. I tried to tell her how much trouble she's in, yeah, but she wouldn't say anything. Let's trade, said Charles. I'll take the guy this time. Maybe he likes to play hardball. I'll take the blonde woman, said Landers. I really need to deal with the men outside, said Stuba. Martin, you're the lawyer type. No, I'm not. You go try and get something out of Weepy. Ah, Good luck with that, quipped Flanders. Martin's heart sank. He would rather have rubber-hosed the surviving guy. He still had a lot of unspent adrenaline to use up. Crying women were worse than dental work. He knocked and entered the small upstairs bedroom. The brown-haired woman sat up against the headboard of a tall twin bed, in a seated fetal position. Knees pulled up to her chest. She looked up at him briefly, before burying her head in her arms, as if hiding. Her shoulders quivered with silent sobs. Martin guessed that she was in her late twenties. She was very thin. Her arms looked to be all wrist. When she looked up, he could see that she had old scabs on her cheeks and temples. Hmm. Looks like she's had a rough life already, Martin thought. Maybe the soft approach will be unexpected. Martin pulled a small wooden chair into the corner of the room opposite the bed. He sat down and said nothing. From his scant experience with crying women, he had unscientifically decided that they couldn't hear while they were crying, so it was futile to talk to him. He thought it might have something to do with plugged eustachian tubes, but he was no biologist. He sat with his arms folded across his chest, staring out the window. His plan, such as it was, was to try and look as non-threatening as possible in hopes that she would relax enough to answer questions. Working against his plan was her first impression of him, a man with a big gun bossing her around. In his peripheral vision, he could see her look up, She stared at him for several long minutes. "'What are you going to do with me?' Her voice was hoarse. Her body language shouted fear, like a dog regularly beaten. "'Nothing. That's why I'm sitting way over here.' He was careful not to look at her. After a long pause, she snuffled hard to clear her nose. "'What do you want?' Her tone was slightly irritated. "'Just to talk.' Martin said as casually as he could, I don't know anything. She buried her head again. Maybe not. First off, could I ask your name? Mine is Martin. Cassie, she said without looking up. Hi, Cassie. Do you remember me? Martin asked. Cassie looked up at him as if it was an absurd question. Since he seemed serious, she studied his face in furtive glances, then shook her head. Do you remember when the guys in your group were arguing with the man on the porch of a white house? The house was on a dirt road. Then a bunch of neighbors showed up and chased your group away. "Uh Uh-huh, she answered hesitantly. I was the guy behind the tree, not far from where you were standing, behind a shopping cart full of stuff. I had a light brown jacket on, then. You pointed at me. She wiped her forearm across her nose while she snuffled, and she finally looked him squarely in the eye. That was you? Yep. Martin could see her eyes shifting left and right as she played back memories. That really rattled Jace, she said with a trace of a smile. He acted all mad after that, but I could tell you guys scared the spit out of him. The thought seemed to please her. Well, I guess that was our goal. Martin smiled, after making brief eye contact. "'Is Jace the one who was wearing camo today?' he probed gently. "'No, that was Buck. Jace was the gray coat.' "'Ah, Buck. I thought that after scaring you all away, your group would have gone down the road to Sanford or farther. I guess not.' "'No, Jace was mad. He wanted to stay.' Martin felt he was making progress. He had some names.' He wondered what Cassie's connection was to this group. She spoke of them in a way that seemed detached. She didn't talk like a girlfriend. A sister, perhaps? He tabled that thread of his curiosity. Uh, and the other two, the smaller man and the other woman? That's Matt and Darcy. They're married. Ah, well, I'm glad Matt gave up when he did. We didn't want to hurt anybody, just ask some questions. Her eyes welled up with fresh tears. She buried her head in her arms and sobbed. Martin waited until she was cried out and her Eustachian tubes cleared. Perhaps a change of topic would be good. Are you uh, hungry? Thirsty? Do you want anything? Some water, she said faintly. Martin stepped out of the room and told Mrs. Hendrick. They re-entered the room together. Martin sat in his corner chair, while Mrs. Hendrick offered a glass of water to Cassie. "'Would you prefer if Mrs. Hendrick stayed in the room while we talk?' Martin asked. Cassie nodded as she drank. Mrs. Hendrick sat on an old steamer trunk, at the foot of the bed. "'So where do you come from, Cassie?' "'Manchester.' "'Did you know Matt and Darcy in Manchester?' "'No.' "'Jace or Buck?' "'No.' She looked like she wanted to talk, but uncertain if she should. Martin waited, fussing disinterestedly with his bootlaces. We met them on the way out, Cassie said. When the power went out, Evan thought. Her voice caught in her throat. She swallowed hard. Anyway, the apartment got really cold, and the water quit. The toilet wouldn't flush any more. The manager was gone. No one knew anything. "'We had eaten everything we had. We usually eat out, like at Euro Bistro or or Little Brown Mug.' "'Oh, your poor dear,' said Mrs. Hendrick, her mothering instincts fully engaged. "'Would you like some oat biscuits? I made them just this morning.' Cassie looked up with a shy smile. That was all Mrs. Hendrick needed. She was out of the room and down the stairs in a moment. "'We didn't have a car.' keep a small carbon footprint, save the planet and all. But there was no TV, no Internet, nothing. We didn't know what was going on, or what to do, or where to go. We could see lots of people walking down Merrimack Street. Evan thought they must have been heading toward some shelter or something. Mrs. Hendrick returned with three small biscuits on a plate, complete with a little paper doily. Hard times doesn't mean that hostessing had to be Spartan. Cassie devoured one biscuit. She held one in each fist, wiping the crumbs off her lips with the back of her hand. "'We packed a few things before we left, but it wasn't much. We joined the other people walking down Merrimack Street, but no one knew anything about a shelter. They were just walking to get out of the city. Lots of them had almost nothing, like us.' Some had big backpacks and camping gear, uh, like Jace and Matt and Darcy. They had big backpacks and lots of stuff. They were getting really friendly and said that we could come along with them. Evan figured they knew some place to go. Did they? Martin asked. Uh, Have somewhere to go, I mean? Oh, not really. Everyone on the road was just looking for some place to be, but no one seemed to know where where that was. We were all just walking out of the city. It seemed like we walked forever. Oh, my feet were so sore. Jace led us through a lot of woods. It seemed like a hundred miles of woods. We came to this lake. They set up their tents and made a fire. Lots of other people were doing the same thing it was like a state park or campground or something just not there must have been hundreds of people setting up camps matt and darcy had their tent jace said that evan and i could stay in his tent with him i thought it was a little creepy but evan said it would be fine for a couple of days it was like a big summer vacation of total strangers only cold people were sort of friendly and helpful Uh, We sat around campfires, talking about the power being out. But more and more people kept coming. The new people seemed angry at everyone. You could hear the shouting and the fighting. One time there were gunshots. Uh, People said someone got killed, but I didn't see it. Cassie paused to eat the biscuits that she had in her hands. Mrs. Hendrick took the empty plate downstairs for a refill. On the third day at the lake... Jace said Evan should go rabbit hunting with him. Jace came back that night, but Evan didn't. Jace said Evan went to get some supplies. I didn't believe him, but what could I do? Evan never came back. Jace said I didn't need to worry about anything. He would take care of me. Shivers ran down Martin's back. He could guess what that meant. She was heading for dark memories. Uh, "'You don't have to say anything if you don't want to.' She laid her head back down under her arms. Mrs. Hendrick returned with some milk, soft cheese, and a slice of toast. A welcome distraction. "'You didn't stay by the lake?' Martin tried to fast forward. "'No. Jace said the lakes were getting too dangerous. "'They took their tents and stuff down. "'I had to carry Jace's stuff as we walked around the lake.' In the little town, uh, Longmeadow, Jace found a couple of shopping carts at a mini-mart. The store was empty and the windows broken. That's where we met Buck. He and Jace seemed to hit it off right away. Buck, Jason, and Matt tried to beg for food at some of the houses, but no one would open their doors, except this one old woman. She let Jace and Buck go inside. Uh, they came out with pillowcases full of food. "'They laughed and said that the lady insisted that they take it.' "'Cassie hung her head. "'I didn't think about what probably happened, oh, until later.' "'Mrs. Hendrick looked at Martin in disbelief. "'He could see her stifling an urge to say something. "'Instead, she chewed her lip and looked down. "'You made your way all the way to Cheshire pushing shopping carts?' "'Cassie nodded. "'Jason Buck wanted to go fast.' but the hills were really hard. Martin let her consume her milk, cheese, and toast. He hoped Cassie had talked enough to feel comfortable discussing more recent events. So, Cassie, I'll be direct. An old couple was killed a few days ago. Their house is on the side of the hill near the pond. Do you know anything about that? It was Buck and Jace. I didn't see them do it, but it had to be them. I don't know why they did it. After they made the hut, they talked like they could hide out forever. But it wasn't easy. She looked down at her knees for a long moment. Buck was mad at Jace. Said he should, you know, share. But Jace wouldn't. Buck was mad because they promised him a woman, but never delivered. Who promised him something like that, and why? Martin wondered out loud. I don't know. That's just what they said when they got back from the meeting somewhere late one night. They didn't tie me up that time, but told me that I'd better not try to leave, or I'd be really sorry when they found me. I was scared. I had no idea where I was, or where to go, or anything, so I just stayed in the hut. Then when they came back, Buck was all happy that someone promised him a woman, and he wouldn't have to do much. Do? Martin asked. What was Buck supposed to do? He never said, only that it was easy. You don't know where this meeting was, do you? Martin's head spun with questions. No, they never said. They never let me leave the camp. I was always watched, except for that first meeting. Darcy was okay as a watcher. She didn't like me, but she wasn't mean like Matt. They came back from their meeting with some food, too that was nice. After the second meeting, they came back with big guns and boxes of bullets. Did Buck or Jay say who they were? Martin had a good idea, but he didn't want to put any ideas in her head. He wanted to hear it from her first. No, they never said. I figured it was somebody rich that they knew, since whoever it was had food and guns and women to give away but when Buck didn't get his woman like he expected, oh, he got real mean. When Jace wasn't watching, Buck would kick me or slap me. He would be gone for days sometimes. Oh, Those were the good days. When the extra food ran out, he said he knew where to get more. Did Buck or Jace say anything about killing anyone? This was dangerously close to leading a witness, but Martin felt pressed for time. "'Oh, not in so many words. "'They had this odd laugh that they did, "'kind of like, ha, 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 ha!' "'She mimicked a cynical laugh in a deep voice. "'It was more than a little creepy. "'I heard them laugh like that before, "'like at that old lady's house in Longmeadow. "'I didn't dare ask any questions or they'd hit me again. "'I just ate the new food and stayed quiet.' "'Oh, what kind of new food?' Martin asked. Oh, I don't know. Plain food? Pasta? Jars of peaches? Cans of soup? Stuff like that? Cans of soup, eh? Uh, Would you be willing to tell people in a courtroom what you told me now? A courtroom? Cassie was clearly agitated and nervous. I can't say who killed anybody. I was in the hut. I never saw anything. I don't want to get into any trouble. Oh, you won't be in trouble. But if Matt and Darcy hear, they'll... Matt and Darcy won't be able to hurt you. They're in enough trouble already. I wouldn't ask you to go through all that, except there's a guy who lives next door to the people who were killed, and everyone thinks he killed them. There were no witnesses, but Jason Buck planted evidence that framed this guy. I'm worried the guy will get blamed and maybe executed for something he didn't do. He could get executed for the murders. He has a sick wife, All I want for you is to tell people your story. That's all. Hooper and Haddock set out the last of the wooden folding chairs. The auditorium was packed. The more able-bodied stood along the walls, leaving the limited seating for the less sturdy. Their number had been increasing lately. Martin sat at a folding table set up for the defense. Stuba sat at the prosecution's folding table across the aisle. The jury sat in two rows of folding chairs, set up behind ropes. The jurors' faces looked neutral, at least less angry, compared to the faces of the general audience. It was hard to imagine that Earl and Edith were so widely known in Cheshire that so many people could be deeply upset at the loss. Instead, Martin thought people might be already upset at the food shortage. The troubles that they had already faced, with the harshness of a winter without power. Patience was thin, and tempers were quick to flare. Where Trevor represented the savage danger from without, Cameron had become the poster child for the evil within, a neighbor who could turn on his fellow neighbor. Fear breeds anger. Judging from their faces, people disliked a traitor more than they disliked thugs. Selecting the jury had been more of a problem than Martin anticipated to achieve any sense of impartiality he had to disqualify anyone he knew lived on wilson hill or any of the surrounding clusters that only left people from north pond or south farms many of them were clearly frustrated too and short-tempered if cameron was going to get any kind of a fair trial he needed anything but 12 angry men in the audience behind him sat his family and household Andy's cheerful nods and thumbs-up contrasted with Margaret's worried face. Judy looked a little lost, like she wished Dustin was with her, but Martin asked him to wait outside with his carbine and the high point. Pat was adamant that she would not allow firearms in her courtroom. Although he felt naked and exposed without at least the high point in his waistband, given the animosity toward Cameron, Pat's rule was prudent. Nonetheless, he wanted them nearby. Footsteps on the stairs echoed through the double doors. Murmurs of voices died down. Landers, acting as bailiff, brought Cameron, in handcuffs, up to the auditorium. As Landers led him down the aisle, there were jeers and grumbled epithets. Someone threw something small and hard. It hit Landers in the head by mistake. "'Hey!' he shouted. "'Everyone just settle down, or we'll clear this place out!' It wasn't easy for a Santa-like figure to pull off anger. But Landers managed it. He sat Cameron beside Martin. The room was quieter. Cameron sat with his head down. He seemed to finally realize the gravity of his situation. Martin felt a little stupid with the table set before him, but nothing to put on it other than his fidgeting hands. What sort of papers did lawyers have stacked on their tables? He had nothing. Martin saw Pat peering out of a little window of the door off stage. She was trying to catch Landers's eye so he could announce her in. Landers was busy glaring the audience into better behavior. Martin cleared his throat. When Landers looked his way, he tipped his head toward the backstage door. Oh, right. Uh, I'll rise, Landers announced. The clatter of chair legs on the hardwood floor made a brief roar. Pat strode in, wearing her stately choir robe. She sat down with as much dignity as the scruffy little oak desk would allow. Pat read the charges while Cameron stood. She called on Stuba for his opening statement. Stuba stuck to the facts. The Altmans appeared to have been murdered and their deaths faked to look like monoxide poisoning. He cited the running arguments that the accused had with the victim. This elicited some scattered statements of Me too, and I heard them myself from the audience. Pat wrapped the gavel and ordered silence. Decorum returned slowly. Stuba resumed listing off the circumstantial evidence. Martin noticed that he was careful not to state, outright, that Cameron was the killer. In their pre-trial review of the evidence, it was clear to everyone that there was little to establish that Cameron was the killer, but that Buck and Jace likely were. While it was procedurally correct to seek a dismissal based on lack of evidence, Landers urged that they proceed with the trial so people themselves could get the true story. The dismissal would look like justice being hijacked. People needed to have faith in the system, not suspicious of it. Martin figured there would be little patience in the crowd for long opening defense statements. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury. He felt like a cliché character in a cheap crime movie talking like that. On the other hand, the situation called for some formality. You're here today to decide if the actual evidence, not what people say or what the accused might have said, but the actual evidence, proves beyond reasonable doubt, here he paused for emphasis, that Cameron over there really killed Mr. and Mrs. Altman. He doesn't have to be a good neighbor or even a nice man. The only question is whether the evidence proves he killed them, beyond a reasonable doubt. Martin sat back down the audience rippled with murmurs. Stuba called his witness, neighbors who heard Cameron and Earl arguing and the history of their quarrel. He called two of the many who heard Cameron's threats at the town meeting. Stuba described Edith's neck, Earl's head wound, and the faked generator scene. Occasional calls of, yeah, and right, came from the audience. One of them was Candace, a few rows back. Her many thin facial wrinkles were all twisted into a very angry-looking frown. She lost her friend, Edith, so she was eager for a conviction. There was no point in cross-examining Stuba's witnesses. What they said was true and widely known. Martin called Landers as his first witness. The crowd murmured lightly. Landers recounted the morning's events and the shootout with the squatters and the three people captured. Most of the residents had heard Berg's call for reinforcements. They knew something was up. Those within a few miles of Mill Pond couldn't have helped hearing the gunfire. They knew something had happened. This was their first briefing on just what actually happened. The murmurs grew. No one knew there were squatters camped beside Mill Pond. Landers pointed to Matt, Darcy, and Cassie as the surviving squatters taken into custody. With her presence in town explained... Martin called Cassie to the stand. She looked nervous and scared like a stray cat on the verge of bolting. The sight of Matt and Darcy glaring at her was particularly troubling for her. Martin made a point of standing between them so she couldn't see them. Even if she froze up on the stand, Martin had an ace in the hole. Cameron's wife gave him a picture she took of Cameron proudly holding two ducks from last year's hunt. The boots are clearly visible the same boots that Buck had on. Martin had her start from the beginning, the day the power went out. He felt that her story helped define the kind of men Jace and Buck were, since no one in town knew them. Cassie described the meetings. Darcy must have felt that Cassie was painting her as an accomplice to the murders. Darcy broke her silence. That's not true. Pat wrapped her gavel. Instead of quieting down, Darcy stood up. We had nothing to do with what Jason Buck did. Pat rapped louder, warning her to be quiet. It wasn't our fault. We were just going to camp out by the pond and mind our own business. Landers stepped over to take Darcy out of the auditorium. Pat had ejected her. Darcy continued while Landers pulled her along. No one would have gotten hurt if they hadn't talked to that big man, she said over her shoulder. Uh, Hold on. Martin said loudly. W- what was that? Matt and I were minding our own business, not bothering anybody. It wasn't until Buck and Jace started meeting with that big man. That's when things went bad. Darcy tried to point, but her hands were handcuffed behind her back. If that woman hadn't introduced Jace to that big man in his big black SUV, none of this would have happened. I say, if anyone's at fault, it's her fault. Darcy pointed with her head at Candace. What? Candace's face went pale. Bad enough that Martin got drafted into being a defense lawyer again, but now the trial is turning into a circus. On Buy Me a Coffee and Patreon, I've been posting news updates from the homestead, like a video of a bobcat prowling around my chicken coop and other garden pests. I'm hoping to have the final chapter of Harold's Escape posted soon, too. Consider becoming a member or a patron and unlock some additional content. Check it out at buymeacoffee, all one word, dot com slash mickroland, all one word, or patreon.com slash mick underscore roland. Well, I'd love to have you as a member.